connect team leading them. All right, so kids go back, the connect team has them. And I want to say to the parents as they go, uh, next week, usually it's K through four, right? We have fifth grade stay in with us throughout the whole service because fifth grade we see is kind of that bridge year. Fifth graders, they, they're in here, they will attest to the fact that it's an awkward age. It's like you got one foot in one pool, right? Still kind of doing the, the kids stuff, but you're also got your eye on a teenage life that is on the way. And so we have them staying with us. But next week, uh, parents, if you would like your fifth grader to go to Kids Praise, they are welcome to do that. Next week is uh, Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, and we are going to be talking about the issue of abortion a bit uh, in here. Uh, and so I know that maybe you aren't ready for your fifth grader to hear about that. For those of you who have sixth graders, I would challenge you to have them in here because the world is absolutely talking to our 6th graders and our 7th graders and our 8th graders about these issues. And so uh, I would challenge you to have them in here, have the church speak to them about these issues from the Word of God. But we understand if you have an elementary schooler just not quite ready to have them in here for that conversation, for that message, that's fine. You can have them go to Kids Praise next week. We are in Acts 10. That's where we're going to be spending our time today. We'll take a little break next week before we are back in Acts 10. Uh, so today we are going to be looking at the first 33 verses of this chapter. The book of Acts begins with a commission from Jesus that is groundbreaking. But you and I probably treat it as being fairly normal. We live in an age where we sing songs like, Let the Nations Be Glad. And we give money to a mission board that has missionaries serving all different types of people groups in 185 countries around the world. We stand on the shoulders of men like William Carey, who spent 41 years sowing gospel seeds in India. We stand on the shoulders of women like Lottie Moon, who spent 39 years doing mission work in China. We assume that the gospel should go to the whole world, that we should all be a part of that through giving and praying and maybe going yourself on a mission trip here in uh, the local area or here in the United States or maybe even getting on a plane and going overseas on a mission trip. So when we read the commission that jumpstarts the narrative of Acts, we may be convicted in our hearts about how we should be better evangelists. Or we should be more involved in global missions. But I, I doubt you stop after reading Acts 1-8 and you're like, are you sure, Jesus? The ends of the earth. So Acts 1-8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So we don't read that and think, you mean non-Jewish people, Jesus? We read that and we think, of course, how wonderful, I'm going to be a part of that. But it wasn't that way in the early church. The saving promise of God going from Jew to Gentile was a shock to the system of many Hebrew believers. To even eat at a Gentile's table was difficult to bear. But to share a spiritual household with those who previously could not enter into the temple courts and really shook the ground that they stood on. It flipped their world upside down. And in this passage today, we will see God orchestrating events to see full-blown Gentile pagans 
brought into his new covenant promise. And in the process, he is going to take away from us any justification for prejudice that we could ever come up with as Christians. Today we see that the gospel is for all. The last that we left off, Peter was at Simon the Tanner's house in Joppa. The location is not insignificant. We'll talk about that here in a moment. But let's read Acts 10, starting in verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were, prepa- while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance And saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you were looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited the men to be his guests. The next day he rose... And went away with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him, and on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. 
He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. We'll get into Peter's evangelism of these folks next week. But today, we just focus on how we got there. There's a lot of verses here. 60% of it is direct speech, either from an angel or from Jesus or from the Holy Spirit or from Cornelius or from men in Cornelius' party, and then, of course, from the Apostle Peter. This is what we would call historical narrative. Luke does not present this as a fairy tale. This is not a parable. This is not an urban legend. He is writing this, just like the rest of the story of Acts, as an account of facts. These are events that occurred. There's a lot of verses, but we can break them up into four main sections. We have Cornelius' vision in the first eight verses. We have Peter's vision in verses 9 through 16. We have Peter and Cornelius' messengers in chapter 10, 17 through 23. And we have Peter finally meeting Cornelius in verses 23 through 33. And so I'm going to move through these sections, make sure we understand what is unfolding in the passage. We'll have two implications, one application, and then we will be done. We start with Cornelius. He's a centurion of the Italian cohort. This means he was responsible for at least 80 men. Some scholars say he could have been in charge of up to six regiments of 100 men. And this is sort of like the equivalent of a United States Army captain today. The Italian cohort was likely an army of non-citizens who were, surprise, surprise, Italian. And they were probably volunteers. Cornelius' name would have come from the Roman general Cornelius Sulla, who lived about 100 years before him, and he was one of the most gifted and also one of the most brutal generals in the history of Rome. In verse 2, Cornelius is described in five phrases. He's a devout man. That means that he would have had a reputation for being religious. He was a God-fearer. This refers to the fact that he had a fear of God, he had a reverence for God, and he's referred to as a God-fearer again in verse 22 by his messengers. God-fearers were Gentiles who were sympathetic to the Jewish faith, and more than that, even attracted to the Jewish faith. Not circumcised, not fully proselytized into the Jewish faith. In the temple, he could go no further than the court of the Gentiles, and yet he had a great reputation among the entire Jewish nation in Caesarea, and he is known as one who worshipped the Jewish God. He's about as Jewish as you could get while still remaining a Gentile. We also learn in verse 2 that his fear of God spread to his household, meaning that he was leading his family to exalt this God, Yahweh. And as a part of his piety, Luke says that he gave generous alms to the people of the city and that he also prays continually to God. When Luke says that he prays continually, it probably means that Cornelius is praying during the Jewish times of prayer. So you've got the third hour, you've got the uh, sixth hour, you've got the ninth hour, 9 a.m., 12 p.m., 3 p.m., And so during one of those times of prayer, at 3 p.m. or the ninth hour, an angel of God appears to him in a vision and calls him by name. Now, when angels show up in Scripture, Cornelius, 
uh, is just like the rest of the folks that tend to see them. He's in terror. When people see angels in Scripture, most of the time they are greatly alarmed. They're aware of the fact that they are in the presence of a heavenly being. It shakes them. But though he is in terror, the angel comforts Cornelius, tells him that his alms and his prayers have ascended as a memorial before God. Memorial is the Greek word that the Greek version of the Old Testament used to describe the grain offering that was burned on the altar to acknowledge God's provision for his people. We should not read this and think that Cornelius' God-fearing piety has somehow earned him this visit from the angel or earned him this uh, hearing of the gospel that is going to come through Peter. Instead, we should simply recognize that God loves a lowly heart and that Cornelius seems to have a lowly heart. doesn't seem to be a proud man. Psalm 138 verse 6 says, For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty or the proud he knows from afar. The scriptures tell us on more than one occasion that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Cornelius is a man who seems to have his heart low, putting him in a good posture to receive the good news of the gospel. I don't think he's already saved. I don't think he's already regenerate. That's going to happen after he hears the gospel and he responds to it. But he is a man that does not think high of himself, but he thinks highly of the law of God, despite the fact that he's still guilty by it. Verses 5 and 6, he receives this instruction from the angel. He is to send men to Joppa, to the house of Simon the Tanner, and they are to bring a man named Simon Peter back to Caesarea. These are very specific instructions, aren't they? God is making sure that they're going to find Peter. They, give, they, they get Peter's uh, Greek name and Hebrew name here, right? Uh, Cornelius gets the name of the home that he's staying in. He's told the city that he's staying in and the fact that it is by the sea. And so it's like the angel is pointed to the place on the map. Cornelius is obedient, and he does this as soon as the angel departs. He sends three men, two servants of his household, and one of his most devoted soldiers to go and get Peter. They have a 37-mile journey ahead of them, and they do it in about 21 hours. They were getting it, as my dad would say. The passage here, I will say, it's always reminded me of Star Wars a little bit. And here's why. When you watch Star Wars, I know Ben's getting very excited right now. Pastor Ben's fired up. He's like, Pastor Michael doesn't even like Star Wars that much. He's talking Star Wars. So, but no, when you watch Star Wars, there will be like a conversation going on on one planet, right? And then the screen will wipe. And then the next thing you know, you're on a different planet and you're seeing the people that were being talked about in the conversation that was happening in the scene before. And then the screen will wipe and it'll jump to another scene uh, and, and these, it just kind of goes back and forth as you're watching the story unfold. And that's really the way it is here. It's like you get Cornelius's uh, vision and you get the instructions and he's sending off the messengers and then the screen wipes and suddenly we are in Joppa with Peter on the rooftop, trying to get some privacy for the midday prayer. Lunch is being prepared. He's hungry. It's probably really hot. And as he's praying, he falls into a trance. The Greek word for trance is similar to our word for ecstasy. 
or our word ecstasy. And, and it carries the idea of not being asleep, but also not quite being conscious, somewhere in between. Paul uses the same word to describe an experience of his in Acts 22. And in verses 11 and 12, Peter has this vision of a sheet coming down from heaven, being lowered by four corners. And in it are all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds. It's really the full variety of animals that God has created. Genesis 1.24, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And so it's all kinds of different animals on the sheet. Unclean animals as well as clean animals. Devoted Jewish people were serious about what the ceremonial law of God stated in Leviticus 11. Verse 46, this is the law about beast and bird. And every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms on the ground to make a distinction between the unclean and the clean. And between the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten. Old Covenant believers really understood all people and all food to be split up into categories of the holy and the common or the profane. They understood them to be clean or unclean, pure or impure. Eckhart Schnabel commenting on this says, while the common people, animal objects can be pure or impure, the holy, the temple, can never be impure. In terms of people, priests were holy. In terms of nations, Israel was pure. But Gentiles, non-Jewish people, were common or profane. In terms of food, there were animals that were clean and unclean. Unclean animals were not to be sacrificed to God, they were not to be eaten at the table. The law limited Israel to cattle, to sheep, to goats, a few kinds of fish, everybody's favorite, pigeons, it's a joke, turtle doves, several other birds, and then locusts, just in case the pigeons was not enough for you. Meanwhile, Gentiles, they ate any animals that they wanted to eat. So these food laws then set Israel apart from the Gentile nations. It made them distinct from the rest of the nations. When they went to the marketplace and they were buying and they were selling, it was clear that they were different. It reflected their chosen status with God. It underlined God's electing love for them and how they were set apart. And Peter sees the clean and the unclean on this sheet. He hears a voice in verse 13. My good friend Hobson Bateau, the pastor of Pocosin Baptist, says this is every hunter's favorite Bible verse. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter responds to the Lord by saying, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. I, I've only ever eaten the cattle, the sheep, the goats, the few kinds of fish, the pigeons, the turtle doves, Several other birds, the locusts, I've never put any unclean food to my lips. I don't think we should view this the way that we view some of Peter's other rash moments. I know that this is a man who looked at Jesus and, you know, forbade him to die, right? And then was rebuked by Jesus, get behind me, Satan. I know that this is a man 
Uh, as Dave Shin shared when he taught on Wednesday night at our midweek service, uh, this is a man who said, you'll never wash my feet. Never, Lord. And then he says, well, then you have no part with me. He's like, well, then wash the whole thing. I don't think this is the same sort of pride, uh, prideful defiance that he had when he told Jesus, I, I would never, ever deny you. I think this is an honest desire out of Peter to not transgress the law that he had kept his entire Jewish life. I think this is a real honest moment of him saying to the Lord, I don't want to do something that would dishonor you. No way. I can't eat this. So in verse 15, it happens again. And this time the voice says, what God has made clean, do not call common. What God has made pure, do not call unclean. Verse 16 says this happened three times before the sheet returns to heaven and the vision in the trance comes to an end. In verse 17, the visions intertwine with one another. Cornelius's and Peter's, it starts to come together. Peter's really perplexed in his soul about what this vision could mean. But as he's considering it, Cornelius's search party shows up at the gate and starts calling out for Simon who is called Peter. Verse 19, Luke mentions for a second time Peter is pondering the vision. I, I talked about this last week. There's no way for Luke to know this unless Peter tells him that. Right? We're, we're, we're getting the internal feelings of Peter here about the vision. So I have to imagine Peter shared with Luke, man, when I got this vision, I, I didn't know what to make of it at first. Clearly, this is a watershed moment in Peter's life. He remembered every detail, even how confused he was when he first received the vision. As he's concentrating on the meaning of it, the Spirit of God speaks to him and tells him that the three men are there and they're looking for him. And he tells Peter to rise and go down and accompany them. In the ESV it says, without hesitation. And tells them they've been sent by the Spirit. When the Holy Spirit speaks to Peter and says, without hesitation... There's a little more going on there than some of our English Bibles will let on. The Greek word can also translate to distinction. And so God is telling Peter, you go with these men and do not make a distinction about them. Do not hesitate because they're Gentiles. Don't make that distinction. Don't hesitate because Caesarea is a Roman military town filled with Gentiles. Don't make that distinction. You go. And after Peter goes down to meet them and asks why they are there, they explain the vision Cornelius had. And they stay with Peter at Simon's for the night. The next day, they all get up. Peter's obedient. No distinction made. They go on the 37-mile journey back to Caesarea. The party grows. Peter brings some brothers with him from Joppa. We learn in chapter 11, verse 12, there are six brothers with Peter. And that's important. Because, spoiler alert, Cornelius' family is going to receive the gospel, repent. They're going to speak in the same tongues that Peter and the apostles spoke in in Acts 2, evidencing the fact that they've received the same spirit. They're going to be baptized. And there are going to be people in the church who have a big problem with it. And these men will be the witnesses to back up Peter's story and say, yeah, we were there. Same spirit received, converted, believers in on the covenant, these Gentiles. 
They all get to Caesarea a day later. Cornelius has his family and some close friends waiting there for Peter. Clearly, the vision from the angel convinced Cornelius that this messenger, whoever he is, is going to be very important. He's going to bring something very important to their home. When Peter walks in, Cornelius falls down at his feet and tries to worship him. But Peter lifts him up and says, look, I'm just a man like you. One pant leg at a time, just like you, Cornelius. And so they go inside, there's lots of people there, and Peter addresses them, and what he says is hugely important. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation, meaning a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. With these words, Peter has explained that he understands the vision. He has come to understand this is about a whole lot more than food. That this is about people. In verses 30 through 34, Cornelius responds by sharing his own vision. Tells Peter, we're here to hear what you have to say. 33 verses is enough. We'll stop there for today in terms of the exposition and and breaking this down verse by verse. We'll look at Peter's evangelism in a couple of weeks. But for today, just two important implications of what is taking place in these verses. These are not theological implications for the ivory towers of seminaries that rarely impact our daily lives. These are theological implications that put the rubber on the road. They impact your everyday life. How you deal with your neighbors. The food you put in your mouth. We'll start there. Implication number one has to do with you eating bacon and and pork barbecue. So number one, the ceremonial law has been discontinued. The ceremonial law has been discontinued. It is important that we understand that we're only talking about the ceremonial law. We're not talking about the moral law of God. We're not talking about the Ten Commandments. Instead, we're talking about the ceremonial laws, like those regarding dietary restrictions, which existed for the purpose of keeping God's old covenant community distinct from the pagan Gentile nations around them. Before Jesus, a devout Jew would not be caught dead worshiping in a pagan temple. Perish the thought. Before Jesus, a Gentile could not worship in the Jewish temple. Then Jesus comes. Lives a perfect life. Pours out his blood as the ultimate sacrifice for sin. Providing a final and complete atonement for the people of God rendered the Old Testament sacrificial system as obsolete. It was a shadow of what was to come in Christ who is the true form of the good things that were foreshadowed. This is what Hebrews 10.1 tells us. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities... It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The ceremonial law was a barrier between Jew and Gentile. But no more. 
Anyone who trusts in Christ's once-for-all sacrifice becomes a worshiper in spirit and truth, and they are united in Him. This is what Paul talks about in Ephesians 2. This is a, a passage of the Bible about racial reconciliation. We're talking about races being reconciled to one another. It happened at the cross of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the answer. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility." Ordinances refer to sacrifices, to offerings, to the laws of cleanliness and laws of purification, outward commands like dietary restrictions. These are the commandments expressed in ordinances. They set Israel apart as distinct before the Messiah came and fulfilled the ceremonial law as the final sacrifice, as the final offering. And now that one final sacrifice, Jesus, is what makes someone clean and pure and sets them apart by grace. The only distinction that exists in humanity now is that of reconciliation with God through Christ. You have it or you do not. It's access to the Father. Paul goes on in Ephesians 2. And he came and preached to you who were far off. That's Gentiles. Preach peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who are near, that's the Jews. For through him we both have one access and one spirit to the Father. Both have access in one spirit to the Father through the Son. And so this is what Peter's vision is about. God says, rise, kill, and eat. Because with the ceremonial law discontinued, fulfilled in Christ, all foods have been declared clean. Jesus foreshadowed this reality in Mark 7 with his own teaching. He said, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? And now Peter is grasping the reality of this through the vision. Turning to Eckhart Schnabel one more time, he says, The heavenly voice in the vision speaks of eating all the animals, including those whom God has declared clean. God is indeed revealing a new order. A new order in the new covenant. In the old order, Peter could not eat bacon. Peter could not eat shrimp, like I did yesterday at my mom's retirement party. But now these things are permanently changing. Luke says that this happened three times. That's important because in Jewish life, three conveys permanence. This new order is here to stay. And yet, this is about so much more than eating shrimp. This is about so much more than food. Because as Peter tells Cornelius' family and friends in verse 28, it's about people. Implication number two, the followers of Christ regard no one as common. 
the followers of Christ regard no one as common. The food restrictions impacted the way that a Jewish person existed in the world. The food restrictions impacted how they would interact with non-Jewish people. It created a them-and-us distinction. When Peter uses the word unlawful in verse 28, what he means is that contact with a Gentile would always put a Jew in a situation where they could become potentially defiled under the ceremonial law. There was no specific Mosaic law about not eating with Gentiles, but the laws regarding dietary restrictions would always be at the risk of being transgressed when you came to a Gentile's table. And so when a Jewish person was invited to a Gentile's home, they had some options. Number one, you could receive the invitation and show up with your own food and Tupperware, so to speak. Number two, you could trust that Gentile to look out for you. Maybe if there was somebody like Cornelius who was a God-fearer, you would trust them. That they would provide food that was kosher, food that was not tainted by idolatry, food that was being served according to the law. Or they could show up and only eat the vegetables on the table. Or, and this tended to be the option most taken, you just don't go. In fact, the book of Jubilees, written a couple hundred years before Christ in that intertestamental period in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, says, keep yourself separate from the nations and do not eat with them. That's man-made law. That's not Bible. But you can see that this was the tradition in synagogue life. Do not imitate their rites nor associate yourself with them. So then when Peter says, He ought not be standing in a Gentile's home. His point is that as a devout Jew, he is putting himself in a law-compromising position historically. However, if God is now saying to Peter, the ceremonial law and its dietary restrictions are discontinued, set aside, it's really no problem for Peter to come to Cornelius' home because of what Jesus has done. Furthermore, if Cornelius and his family will believe in what Jesus has done and they will repent of their sin and they will trust in Christ, they will be united to Peter in Christ. By faith, they will be clean. By faith, they will be brought into the covenant and they will not just be members of a household Peter visits, they will be members of the same spiritual household he belongs to. And this is why the voice in the vision says, what God has made clean, do not call common. And Peter gets it. And so he says this to Cornelius' household. God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. There's nobody that I should not associate with for the gospel's sake. That's what Peter's saying. Nobody ought to be looked at as common Avoided based on their ethnicity or their bloodline. And that is why we will see Peter give Cornelius the gospel next time we get together. Two implications that go hand in hand. The ceremonial law is discontinued. The followers of Christ regard no one as common. And these implications have one great application for us this morning. The Christian has no justification for prejudice. 
Jesus blazed this trail with his perfect life, his righteous life. He ate with sinners and tax collectors that others said he should not eat with. He talked to a Samaritan woman in broad daylight that most Jews would have avoided like the plague. He healed a Roman centurion's servant, a man who would have been very much like Cornelius. And we must credit Peter for now walking in the footsteps of Jesus, not just in his response to the vision. He's walking in the footsteps of his Lord before the vision. He's he's at Simon the Tanner's house. Tanners were people who worked with animal skins. And they were marked and avoided. They were red flagged by most Jewish people because the nature of their work kind of left them ceremonially unclean on a regular basis. Shepherds were treated the same way in Jewish society. And yet Peter is staying at a Tanner's house. Are there people who would have looked at Peter and said, a Tanner, how dare he? Absolutely. Absolutely. And Peter doesn't give a rip. He does not mind breaking social boundaries like his Lord did. It's also, he, it's, it's significant that he's staying with this tanner in Joppa, the place that Jonah fled to when he refused to preach to the Ninevites. Peter's staying there with this tanner, showing hospitality to Gentile messengers sent from Cornelius, going with them to Cornelius without making distinction. And he heeds the vision and the voice of the Lord, and he brings the good news to Cornelius' house. Are we like Peter? Are we like Peter as he imitates our Lord? Are there people that you would call common due to their skin color? Due to what they believe politically? Are there people that you would look at as common due to their sexual behavior, due to their gender dysphoria, which by the way is a real mental health illness that should be addressed with mental health care, not puberty blockers and dangerous hormones and surgeries. Would you avoid someone who had gender dysphoria? Are there places that you would treat like Nineveh and you would just never, ever, ever go for the sake of the gospel? Like Provincetown, Massachusetts, the number one LGBT vacation destination of the Northeast. Like San Francisco, California. Peter's going to go and lead Cornelius and his friends and his family to Christ to the preaching of the gospel. And when Peter gets back to Jerusalem, there are a group of people who are hot with him. Oh, these people got to be circumcised. Gentiles, we got to circumcise them. They're going to need to be baptized by immersion, which was the way that somebody was proselytized into the Jewish faith. It can't just be Jesus. It's Jesus plus these things that they need to do if they're going to be in on the covenant. And they actually criticize Peter on the basis of the fact that he ate with these people. He says, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Would you eat with a person who's a different race than you, a different nationality, somebody who doesn't speak English? What about somebody who claims to be non-binary? Would you have them in your home? Would you criticize someone who did? Would you eat with a person who eats, sleeps, and breathes CRT and thinks DEI should be instituted in every HR department in the country? 
We must be careful not to let the things that divide this world divide us from preaching the gospel to the world. Because here's the thing about prejudice. You think it's this little pet, and I've just got a couple little prejudices. You know, it's the way I was raised. You think it's a little pet, you can just keep it in your house. It's not going to rise up and get you the way pornography would. It won't rise up and get you the way alcoholism would. It won't rise up and get you away those big spectacular sins that, that we talk about would. And Martin Lloyd-Jones says, you do not take up a prejudice. It takes you up and it controls you like any other sin. See, we were all born in sin and because of that, we're born as creatures prone to prejudice. We are creatures prone to an us-them mentality. And this is why Lloyd-Jones says that there is nothing in any realm as hard to get rid of as prejudice. But understand that the very Jesus who died to provide a once-for-all sacrifice for sin, who discontinued the ceremonial law, died for your prejudice. And his life-giving spirit and his sin-defeating salvation frees us from our awful sin nature, frees us from the chains of prejudice and racism and ungodly distinction. When I say have a non-binary person in your house, I'm not talking about approving of sin here. I'm talking about loving sinners. And you are free to please God through the good work of loving the worst of sinners by sharing the gospel with all men and women, whoever they are, from wherever they are. In fact, that is crucial for us to grasp. That we are called to love the worst of sinners with the gospel in hand. God's children are no longer set apart by diet no longer set apart by feast keeping, no longer set apart by the law expressed in ordinances. What are we set apart by? What distinguishes us as Christians from the rest of the world? It's love. It's love which binds all things together, Paul says. First of all, it's our love for one another. The highest ethic of love we're given is that we are to love one another in the church the way that Jesus loves us. He says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And then, it's love for our neighbors. Romans 13.10, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. The band's going to come back and lead us in our final song this morning. But as they do, I want to remind you of a story that we heard from this pulpit when the Gideons came this past year. One of those brothers came, shared a few words about their ministry as they do every spring. He talked about how he was sitting in a coffee shop. And there was a person who was transgender serving him. He felt compelled by the Lord to ask this transgender person the same question that he asks everybody. Do you have a local church that you worship at? And yet, he bravely confessed here that he had an inner conflict. I can't invite this transgender person to church. Surely they'll become angry. 
They'll dismiss me. There's not going to be anything but heated rejection, right? So he began to shrivel back. He said that he had kind of thought, maybe I won't say anything. The division of the world was dividing him from obedience. But then... He shared with us about how he pushed back on his own prejudice. He crucified his flesh in that moment. He asked God for, uh, for the, the courage and he asked the server about church. You have a local church that you worship at. Made no distinction. Same question he asked everybody. In fact, one of our church members had been evangelized by this guy just earlier that week at the furniture store she worked at. He came in and asked her, do you have a local church you worship at? She said, Seaford Baptist. He said, I'm talking there Sunday. This is his consistent line that he uses in evangelism. So he asked this person, and there was no heaven opening, angel singing, sinner repenting moments, but he did have a meaningful conversation with this young person about their past and their past history with the church. And he hopefully planted a seed that some other faithful brother or sister will come along and will water and will harvest. He was faithful. Church, we can be faithful or we can cling to our bias and prejudice. You cannot do both. And Peter learned that. You never know who God's going to make clean by the blood of his son. Do not render them common with your poison partiality. Don't run like Jonah. Get up and go like Peter. Preach the gospel to the whole creation. No distinctions. Father God, help us with this. Help me with this, Lord. Help me to overcome prejudices that maybe are in me that I don't even recognize. Help us all, Lord, to every day come to your word and be yielded to what you have to say in the places where we are still prideful, in the places where we are still worldly, be it in prejudice or anything else, tear it down, God. Just as your son tore down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, now anyone who trusts in you gets to come into the spiritual household of faith, true family, brothers and sisters, bound by the blood of Christ, which is far stronger than the blood of Howard's or McCormick's that runs through my veins. Father, help us to be serious about preaching the gospel to everyone, to not look at somebody who's still got breath in their lungs and think there's no hope for their soul, to go to them and tell them about the truth of your word the full counsel of the gospel, how they are guilty by the law, how the law, like a mirror, if they look into it, will reflect to them their own sin. Because we've broken the eternal law of an eternal God, we deserve eternal punishment. The punishment fits the crime. That we are in danger, that we are born children of wrath, separated from you, but that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, and if we would turn away from our sin, we would agree with you about the evil of it, and that we would put our, our faith, our trust in Jesus, the full weight of our souls upon him, believing in his life and death and resurrection and ascension for our salvation.
Jesus plus nothing. Just faith in Christ. They'll be saved. Whoever they are, whatever they've done. And you will make their heart alive. And you will take care of all of their sin, be it sexual, be it thieving and stealing, be it blasphemy, be it coveting, dishonoring parents, idolatry, not loving you. Whatever sin has gripped them, whatever sin has hold of them, you will break the power of those chains. So Father, we are your ambassadors making your appeal to the world. Don't let us fall down on the job by looking at some people for some reason and saying, not them, Lord. I won't go to them. Help us to be like Peter, to get up and go without hesitation, without distinction, and to preach the gospel to the Corneliuses of the world, whoever they may be. Use us, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.